Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. And in case that surprises you, let me give a special welcome and a word of explanation to those people who are joining us here on the Ingsa Horizons podcast feed instead, because this episode is being simultaneously issued on both the Science for Policy feed and the Horizons feed as a kind of one-off joint endeavour between Sapea, part of the European Commission's Scientific Advice Mechanism, and INSA, that is the International Network for Governmental Science Advice. So perhaps I'll say a few more words than I usually do of introduction before we get stuck in. So my name's Toby. I'm the regular Science for Policy host. And if you are a Science for Policy listener and you would like more science advice goodies delivered to your waiting ears, then search for INSA wherever you get your podcasts and you can have a listen back to their first season. I'm told season two is on the way soon. And the same way if you're an INSA Horizons listener and you would like more of the same, well, we don't do seasons, we just run an episode every fortnight for all eternity. But if you go to sapea.info slash podcast or search your podcatcher, you'll find us. At this stage, we have a huge back catalogue for you to binge on. Okay, so with all that out of the way, Welcome also to my guest today, Professor Rémy Quirion. Professor Quirion has been the chief scientist of Quebec, one of Canada's largest and most prominent provinces since 2011. His role there encompasses several things, scientific advice to the government, as you'd expect, also coordinating research and fostering good communication between the scientific community and citizens. Besides that, he is, of course, the president of INSA, and he has a background in neuroscience where he helped to identify mechanisms underlying Alzheimer's disease. So, Remy, welcome to the podcast. Very good. Very pleased to be with you uh, today. So I know that you are a native French speaker, and I also know that one of your particular interests, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the course of our conversation, is uh, developing more of an international French language community in, in science advice. So I feel like I need to say to you, even more than I do to other guests, uh, thank you for indulging me and our audience by speaking English. <laughs> Very good. No problem. No problem. We know that often the language of science is more uh, in English, but we should not forget other languages as well, Spanish, French, uh, and others. Absolutely. And who knows, one day perhaps there'll be a Science for Policy podcast in French and in Spanish as well. Uh, I mean, we'll get to that. But before we do, I wanted to give you the chance to say a little bit uh, about what exactly INSA is. So, OK, we know it's a network of science advisors, people who work in science advice. But I mean, to what end? What do you do with that network? I think the key, uh, one of the key mandate or objective of INSA is to build capacity globally in science advice and science diplomacy. There is some country where it's very well developed, uh, in Europe, for example, to some extent in North America, but many other countries, it's not as uh, well established. So one of the main goal of INSA from the start, and it's still the same today, is to build capacity. So organizing various type of activities uh, globally, all over the world, to increase capacity to um, to uh, make it attractive for a younger generation, younger generation of scientists to think of science advice, science diplomacy as a possible career path. So certainly that's today is still uh, uh, really important for us at INSA. The way we have done that is by organizing, creating chapter. And we have created chapter in the global south, 
like uh, the chapter in Africa, a chapter in Latin America, and a chapter in Asia. And basically, these local chapters, they are the one organizing workshops, organizing network, again, to build capacity in science advice. And the head office of INSA, still based in Auckland in New Zealand, is there to support activities of the chapters. So, and the, the chapter, I will say chapter in Asia, is doing extremely well, networking uh, uh, advisor from various countries and adapting the advice depending on the need of the country. The chapter in Latin America, quite effective as well, we are kind of rebuilding a little bit the chapter in Africa. And what I would like to do is to continue to develop the network of a chapter by creating one in Europe and one in North America. Right. Okay. I mean, that's interesting. I should mention you're not actually the first INSA president to appear on the podcast. Our very first episode, more than uh, two years ago now, was uh, a conversation with Peter Gluckman, who had your job before you. And he's now based at the International Science Council. But actually, then we talked about other topics. And anyway, it's been a couple of years. So um, perhaps I can ask you for an update. In practical terms, how is it going right now at INSA? Yeah, uh, of course. Uh, and maybe I should say thanks to the pandemic. Uh, there is much more interest related to INSA these days than a few years back. I think many, many governments all over the world realize that they need some type of structure, of organization in, in relation to science advice. So you cannot build that during a crisis like uh, with COVID pandemic. So to have an established type of science advice mechanism in, in a country is something important. So over the past uh, couple of years, we have increased membership. It's now over 5,000 members uh, in more than 130 countries all, all over the world. Uh, we are much more present uh, on social media. So the visibility of INSA uh, increased a lot. The visibility of science, I would say, increased a lot with the pandemic, but that's true as well in terms of science advice and science uh, diplomacy. So the timing for us is great. But of course, one of the challenges is to make sure the uh, to make sure of the long-term sustainability of the organization. So that's something we're working on uh, for the past few months now. Yeah, the pandemic also um, gave rise to some new interest in our work at the SAM too, and and this podcast as well, of course. I'm sure. Do you think that 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 momentum that COVID gave us will continue, or do you expect us to reset to a kind of lower level after a while? I hope it will not go back to uh, same old ways. I think it will continue because of uh, we have many, many other challenges. Uh, we could think of pandemics, and already there is others on the way <laughs> that we hear about. But but uh, also, of course, uh, big challenges like climate change, uh, also issue related to uh, democracy, uh, interests of the public. So I think I think it will it will continue, and I think it's for us scientists to be more uh, present on 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 the on the scene so that citizens continue to to see us in the news and social media that government hear about us i think it's very important that we are we continue to be very present and also of course uh, open science is is a movement that uh, shows uh, is um, the the its impact like developing the vaccine for example 
uh, all open science type of, uh, of uh, activities accelerate the speed of development of the vaccine. So I think uh, everyone now kind of understand that we need to continue that way. Yeah, let's hope so. I mean, it sounds like one of the main things you're doing to support that is working with people who are at national level or I guess sub-national level in science advice. Um, and I can see there's a great value in the international network for those people, for national science advisors. Um, is that the extent of it? Or is there also a need for science advice work at a global level, which Jingsa wants to get involved in? Now, there is a, uh, at the global level, uh, and we saw that during the pandemic uh, and directing like uh, INSA to some extent with the pandemic and working with various groups and working with WHO quite a bit, providing documents to help WHO now uh, also interacting with the International Science Council now chaired by Peter Glockman that you mentioned earlier, uh, and that they are trying to, to find ways to convince the United Nations to recreate some kind of a science advisory group at that global level. So I think we need it at the global level uh, in terms of science advice. And the type of advice you need, at the, you give at the global level, of course, will be very, very high level. And to say, well, most countries, if we think of climate change, should have policy to try to reduce the increase in the production of CO2, for example. So that's something that could be done very globally, then more uh, at the level of a country, then a region, then a more local. So I think we need science advice at all level. And I think the pandemic showed us that we need to improve science advice at the global level, science diplomacy at the global level, settling so that we exchange scientists and high-level policymakers exchange information, scientific information, very early on. Like uh, in the case of, the, again, the COVID pandemic started in China, but we were many, many countries, many of us in other countries like in North America and Europe, kind of slow to react, so oh, it's a bit far, it's in, it's in China. When it got a bit closer, like in Italy, it says, oh, maybe something real that we should. So I think we're a bit slow. So these type of warning sign will have to be improved. And I think they're working with organizations like WHO, UNESCO, of course, other organizations of the United Nations. It's very important to have strong link at that level and then strong link also at the national level. Yeah, and I suppose this then makes it very clear why linguistic diversity becomes important. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the way uh, science advice was built up over the past, I would say, 50 years, really is more like an Anglo-Saxon, started more like in the UK, Commonwealth countries, in the US. And the way of doing business is more like a Anglo-Saxon type of a perspective. And that's fine. In many cases, it's fine. But uh, we have also to think a bit more of when you want to give advice in country where uh, it's not necessarily everyone in government that's fluent in English. So we need to find ways to translate the advice in the language of the country. And sometimes uh, when you translate, you lose something. So the loss in translation uh, that we all know about is really so out. So that's why we need to build capacity in science advice, not only in, in English and then trying to translate that, but also in French and Spanish and in other languages. So that it's not just a matter of translation. It's a matter of how you think 
in terms of providing science advice to elected official, to a level policymaker, and to government. Yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, I can see the two different dimensions, the linguistic dimension, where English is dominant, obviously, and the cultural dimension with this particular way of thinking about and way of doing science advice, what we think of as the Anglo-Saxon way, that's also very prominent. Um, and I, I, yeah, of course, both of those are well suited to some countries and much less well suited to other countries. Um, and I guess I always recognize that they had the same basic explanation, the same like causal route to do with the historical dominance of English speaking countries mm. in a lot of the world, particularly Britain and the US. But it, it didn't occur to me they might be causally linked, as it were, one to the other now, though. So it sounds like you're suggesting that the dominance of English as a language today also kind of promotes that particular way of doing science advice, the, the Anglo-Saxon models, we call it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I saw that uh, personally quite a bit during the pandemic, uh, again, uh, because I've my job in Quebec, I give advice to the Quebec government. All of that is in French. Um, and I was kind of all by myself there. The rest of the world was in English. And when trying to discuss with other French-speaking country, very, very little in terms of science advice, it was not the way of doing things, like in, even in France. So, And then when you start to give advice, if you just say, well, that's what the science advisor in the UK has said. You just kind of translate that into French to my government did not work. So because it's you need to change it a little bit so it's a bit easier to digest by uh, the high-level policymaker and also by the elected official in, in Quebec. And I think it's the same in France. So we have to adapt somehow the, uh, the, the way we do advice when uh, you take into consideration a little bit more language and culture and this is something we have not done too too much up to now uh, I'm, but maybe i should say as well that science advice is still in its early days i mentioned yeah uk and uh, and the us but um, new zealand canada australia uh, india science advisors only for the past 10 years uh, 10, 12 years. So it's still fairly early days. And the crisis, the pandemic crisis again, say, oh, now probably we have to communicate better just in terms of English speaking expert giving advice to their government, but also to taking into consideration other aspects of science advice like language and culture. Yeah. So this is this is maybe a slight diversion, but I wonder if you have any insights into why why this is, like you said, only in its infancy. Because we've had science for a long time, obviously. We've had problems for which science can help for a long time. And the countries you're mentioning, it's not like they're just brand new countries. So how come these places like Ireland and Australia and Canada and so on have only had that stuff in place for a little while? Probably, it's a very good question. It's probably related to some extent, two things I'll say. One, government, often high-level policymaker in government, and also elected official in country like, like Canada, the UK, and so on. There is very few that have a science background. So it's kind of a different language for them. They are mostly from law, uh, political science and all that. So in terms of more, the more type of art science, they, they are not comfortable with that. And the other aspect is more on us scientists. They don't want to 
get all and dirty in a sense. They don't want to have to deal with politicians. They don't want to have to go with that. Wanted to be kind of pure purists and say, "Oh, we're scientists. We we know data. We have data. We have facts. We don't want to have to to link too too much with politician or with high level policymaker in government." We see that a bit less, I must say here, maybe because of again starting in the English-speaking country earlier on, so we see that less that division between high-level policymaker, politician, and scientists. See that less in the Commonwealth type of countries and in the U.S. We still see that quite a bit, for example, in France, where many scientists, oh, I don't want to have to, to deal with that. I do my research. I do my science. I don't want to have to be too close. And often, if you start to be an advisor to government in, uh, in this country, you'll be seen by your colleague as kind of uh, collaborating with the devil, in a sense, a little bit. So, so, but I think, that, I think, again, there, pandemic, climate change, we start to see that this, this thing is changing because, as you say, if we want the uh, high-level policymaker and uh, minister and elected official to make better decisions, they have to understand the science a little bit. And for us, it, it's on us scientists to be able to translate the scientific data into science advice that will make some kind of sense to, uh, to these guys. Yeah, you've talked about a particular interest in developing uh, a francophone community, which is understandable. I mean, French is an important global language. And also, I guess, <laughs> given your position personally in Quebec as a kind of francophone outpost in English-speaking Commonwealth. So do you think there's a particular need to develop specifically French-speaking networks on science advice? Or is this more like a, a good place to start in a broader mission of diversifying beyond English? Uh, it's probably a bit of both. Uh, there is need for, um, because there is very little, I, I'm in French speaking world, I'm the only one as a, as a chief scientist in Quebec, the only one in the French world. There is none in Belgium, there is none in France, there is none in Switzerland, uh, and there is none in French speaking Africa. So, and for various reasons, they have tried a little bit like in France and then people say, no, 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 we don't want that. We don't really need that. So, so I think, and we, it's not that every country should have, French speaking country should have a chief scientist. The model can be different depending on the country, depending on the needs of the country. But I think the pandemic again, and now climate change, demonstrate that we need at least something. We need some kind of a structure to advise government on the normal time, but also during crisis. And you cannot build that during a crisis. It's, it's very, very difficult. So I think, so that's why we decided to launch a call for the creation of an international French-speaking network in science advice. And one of the main objectives of the network will be, of course, networking between people in the various countries, but uh, as important building capacity again. And in in, uh, in, Af in French speaking Africa, maybe less in in Europe, in France or in um, Belgium, but certainly in French speaking Africa will will be one of the main main objective. But already since we have launched that, and I've got question from a colleague in uh, Latin America, for example, saying, "Well, what about 
a Spanish type of network. So I think eventually, yes, maybe we need to create other type of structure. We have the chapter Latin America, as I said. So already there is a structure there and maybe adding something to it in terms of capacity in science advice in, in the Spanish language, maybe something that could be done relatively easily. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see as uh, the, the French network is established. Does it have an impact? Does it change thing, or just basically another structure that has very limited impact? That's something that we certainly would need to evaluate. At the same time as that, by creating a chapter in Europe, uh, what I hope there in Europe, that we will be able to study, to do research on science advice in different countries with different culture and different language. Because of course, Europe is great there. You have all kinds of culture, all kinds of language. And maybe in a few, year, few years time, we'll be able to say, well, on a day-to-day -day basis, there is no real difference if you do it in English and then in German and Spanish and whatever. But we don't have these, these data at the moment. So that's certainly something we want to do at INSA to try to demonstrate, yes, there is a difference or no, there is no difference there. My hunch, but it's only a hunch that yes, there is on the basis of what I mentioned with the pandemic in French-speaking country. And also just thinking of a the way we uh, we interact, for example, if you are in um, in Asia, in Japan, for example, the way you do and you interact with your your colleague is quite a bit different from the way it's done in the UK or done in the US. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so if that's right, so if language and culture are linked in the way you're suggesting, then I guess what you get when you change the language, the benefit you get, is not just that more people can understand you. So like, you know, a kind of improved cultural penetration, if you like. You also get a diversity of different insights, yep. different ways of doing things that you'd miss okay. if you only use the language of, of one culture. Basically. Yeah. This reminds me of something a previous guest on this podcast said. Uh, it was a year ago now. Um, uh, a guest called uh, Lady Tansa. She, If I recall, she was asked to teach a science advice course for what turned out to be a very international group of master's students in London. Um, and as a group, they were pretty shocked to discover that literature was not just all in English, but it was culturally very English. It was from the UK, the US, and a bit from New Zealand, I suppose, because the work of people like Peter Gluckman. Um, and she also identified, I don't want to put words in her mouth because I'm doing this from memory, but my recollection is that she also sensed some resistance among the existing science advice scholarship community to to broadening the scope of scholarship beyond these kinds of inputs. Not like resistance to linguistic input, but more culturally opening up to new sources of knowledge, new bodies of thinking, which kind of go beyond the comfortable parts of scholarship that English-speaking academics feel at home in naturally. Is this part of your thinking too, to try to diversify your inputs as well as your outputs? Yeah, yeah, I think it. I think uh, cultural input certainly is important, and I think at the moment uh, most of uh, the big uh, kind of search engine, uh, it's all they basically just search English-speaking journal. So I think we need to broaden that to include <clears throat> French, uh, Japanese, Chinese, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think, and by doing that, probably everyone will gain. In Canada at the moment, uh, you may know, there is a lot of interest. In, um, yes, of course, the majority of Canadians <clears throat> speak English. 
Then there is in Quebec and some other province, but mostly Quebec, a uh, lot of people speak French, majority speak French, but you also have many other type of uh, communities, First Nation communities, Inuit uh, communities, and there is some there is some knowledge as well there. And when they publish in their language, it's kind of lost. They stay in that in that journal, and nobody, or very few people read it. So one of the things that we want to do it, and that's more my Quebec hat, will be to translate more, or at least provide an abstract in French and in English for some of these uh, papers. And we have started to support many journals that publish in French, article in French, in uh, social science, humanities, uh, arts, uh, health, and uh, science and engineering. And we support these journals that publish the, the head offices in, in Quebec, in Montreal, but it's all open access. So a lot of, uh, of these papers, of these uh, articles are used by teachers in French-speaking Africa. They understand that a bit better than if they go straight to an English, uh, an English article. So, so I think, I think they will try to, um, it's not to reverse the trend. I, I am sure that we'll continue to publish most of the article in, in English, and that's okay. But also making access to French uh, paper a bit easier, Spanish paper a bit easier. Chinese uh, may come. Because, of course, the numbers are just so huge there that in, in, in 20 years' time, who knows? Maybe it's a little bit at the beginning of a century. German was, very, was, was a language of science in the early 1900s. Now it's mostly English. So, so maybe Chinese will be more prominent in a few years' time. Yeah, I did want to ask you, but maybe you've just answered this, but see what you think. Um, I mean, one might have the suspicion that you are somewhat swimming against the tide here. Like if we agree that there's a problem with the overdominance of English, and I guess we're talking not just in science advice circles, but in science in general, I think, scholarship in general. I mean, in principle, there are two <laughs> there are two solutions to that problem, right? One is to broaden the diversity of languages that are used and do more translation and so on. But the other is to just try and get everyone to publish in English and understand English. And maybe if you were starting from scratch, we might say, okay, the first option is obviously preferable. People can do the work in their own language and we get the benefit of the cultural inputs that we talked about a minute ago. But honestly, looking at the world as it is now, maybe we've moved so far in the direction of the second solution, the kind of okay universal English solution, that we just have to throw up our hands and say, all right, I guess it's just going to be English then and let's run with that and make the best of it. Because reversing it now, would well, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, I think uh, if I take my uh, my own uh, cases, my when when I have my own lab at, uh, at McGill uh, in Montreal, probably ninety five percent of the paper that I published were in English, and that's okay. But what we are trying to do now, of course, the original data will be most of them will continue to be in English. What we try now to trying to find ways to support scientists and students to write review. For example, in France. So just think about the uh, the vaccine again, the uh, COVID vaccine. There's many reviews in English, very few in French at the moment. So if you write a review in French on the various vaccine and the one that are better or whatever, that review in French would be used quite a lot. For example, again in French-speaking Africa, because most of the students are not, or even the high-level policymaker are not speaking English. So when we give them brownie points. We give them a bit of reward 
because otherwise, it's, why should I spend my time to write a, a paper in, in French that nobody will read? So that, first of all, review type, where it's the likelihood of being cited and rare desire. And second, rewarding publication in French. Saying it's not a, you will not get tenure at McGill University or even at University of Montreal if you publish all your thing in French. I'm absolutely convinced of that. But at the same time, if you take a bit of time to write few reviews in French, kind of say, okay, what, where are we at now in terms of climate change? And having that a bit more in French, giving and focus on some country, could do the same as I mentioned with the various uh, pandemic. So I think to summarize information in different language will be useful. WHO is trying to do that. They have, they have a different United Nations as well, UNESCO, but often there is quite a long lag behind when it's published in English and then when you have a, a review that will be uh, seen as acceptable by the large community. It certainly seems like a role that INSA is well placed to take on. I mean, if anyone is. And, and with the chapter, and I think the chapter now more and more, they say, oh, it was almost a few years back, almost like it's in English. Science advice all there, background is more kind of UK, Commonwealth type, and it's fine. It's like almost no one was thinking that maybe there is other way to do things. So it was always, it was in, in grind in a sense. We had our workshop all in, uh, all in, uh, in English, uh, even in French speaking uh, Africa. So, and when we have started to do that, then we're able to link more closely with, with high level policymakers in some countries, because many of them do not speak English as you are thinking that they will, but they, but they don't. And the, of course, the student also, many of them do not. So providing them with material that would be easier to understand for them is, uh, is something, it's a role, I think, for INSA and building science advice, advice capacity globally, science diplomacy globally. And that's, uh, that certainly will be one of the main objective of the new network that we'll create over the coming uh, months. Do you think there's also an, an equity argument? Like in principle, there shouldn't be a requirement if you come from a non-English speaking country to learn English in order to be a scientist. We are not going that far at the moment in some of saying, but, but certainly uh, being able to study, uh, to learn science uh, in your own native language should be possible. Is it easy to achieve? No. And like in Canada, uh, French, of course, is easier. But if you think of the First Nation language, it's spoken by a very small group of people. So to, to expect that they will have, for example, science teacher that will know these languages, it's not easy. But certainly something that we could aim at, aim for, we're not there yet. It sounds like even beyond the language question, you have a something of a general mission of really making science advice and science advice scholarship much more directly accessible, not just to policymakers, but you keep mentioning teachers and students, right? Citizens in general. What's key for me is really having a system of science advice everywhere at the level of country, at the level of region, and more and more at the level of cities. Because often you could have a principal at the United Nations, for example, or WHO, but it's at, the, at the end of the day, it's the cities, the mayor of the city or a citizen of that city that will have to 
find ways to deal with, uh, with the flooding, for example. So it's not just science advice in the abstract. It's very, very concrete. So building science advice at all levels, from global to very local, that's one of the aim for, for us, certainly, I think, so, over the next few years. Right. And to me, that, again, implies this need for linguistic diversity. I mean, you can even less expect every city mayor to be fluent in English than you can every government minister. Yeah, and even in a city like uh, so, there's city much larger than Montreal. But even in Montreal, some part of the cities, many of the citizens they do not speak much English. They do not speak much French. And we saw that during the pandemic again, trying to say, well, well, about the pandemic, you should do this, you should not do that, you should go for the vaccine. Well, they don't speak the English, they don't English or French, so it was hard to reach them. So I think uh, at, at, at the very local level, mayor uh, have to have to deal with these things, so we have to find ways to help to support them as well as science advisor. Very good. I look forward to following further the exploits of INSA, um, and I wish you luck in your mission there. How long is your mandate, by the way? It's uh, two years, a couple of years, yeah. I don't know if it could be renewed. Maybe I don't know. Depend if I do. Uh, if I do. <laughs> if I do a good job, maybe <laughs> they will keep me longer. I don't know. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it, and I will get to work on the French language version of this podcast. Thank you very much. It was great. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academy networks, representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism and as such we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but they're not the views of Sapea and certainly not of the European Commission. And finally, this lovely cello music is written by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. And I'm sorry for talking over it. 